Well, it's crazy to think that we are already at the end of this series. Four weeks have flown by as we have looked at what we believe. And I don't know about you, but maybe the most impactful part of this entire series has been for me just watching the bumper each week and seeing the responses to these questions about what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the scriptures? And really today's question, what do you believe about Christianity and what do you believe about Christians? Man, that got my attention as much as any of them because what we've seen, and I think what we see even more pointedly today, is that the problem people have is not so much with the beliefs of Christianity as it is with the actions of Christians. And so when we talk about what we believe and having a reasonable answer for our faith and those things, ultimately the reason that people are walking away and turning away from Christianity is not that they can't find those reasonable answers, but they do not see the integrity of those beliefs laid out in the life of the people who claim to believe them. And so I think that's something we need to wrestle with today as we end this series. What does it look like for us when we say we believe these things and how does it impact the rest of our life? Because here's what I know. The early church held to these foundational beliefs and then the early church changed the world. So I think the question we have to look at and the question we have to think about today is if that's true, If the early church, through these beliefs, changed the world, the question is, how did they change the world? How did the early church make such a difference? How did Christianity grow so rapidly? How did this unknown religion become embraced in most of the known world shortly after the the, uh, resurrection and ascension of Jesus? Well, I think the answer is pretty obvious. The early church lived out the fruit of what they believe. See, every belief has fruit with it. Every belief causes us to live or act a certain way when we hold that belief. For instance, if you believe that fire is hot, you're not going to stick your hand in it. But if you're not sure whether the engine is hot, you might put your hand on it, you know? So, So it is those beliefs that cause us to act a certain way. And when you look at the early church, the beliefs of the early church flesh themselves out through the lives of the early Christians, their beliefs were clothed in actions. It led them to go and care for the poor, to tend to the sick, to share their faith, to be the most gracious, forgiving people that the world had ever seen, while at the same time taking a stand for the reality of the resurrection, the exclusivity of God, and the inspiration of the Scriptures. And it seems as if today that the church has lost that. See, we think that to be relevant to the world today, we need to change what we believe. Well, maybe all gods are the same. Maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Maybe the scriptures aren't entirely truthful. And so we try to change what we believe in order to become more appealing to the culture around us. But the truth is, studies have shown the more we let go of these orthodox beliefs, the less impactful the church becomes. However, when we cling to these orthodox beliefs and let them change the way we live, that's when the church has an impact on the world around it. It's not our beliefs that need to change. It is our actions that need to change. We need to have lives that are impacted by what we believe. 
And when we look at the book of Acts in the New Testament, I believe that's exactly what we see play out. We see this play out in the life of the early church as chapter after chapter unfolds. We see the church put flesh to these beliefs. They live out these doctrines, these truths, this theology. Their beliefs led to their actions and their actions change the world. So what I want to do today is really look at how Acts begins in Acts chapter 1 because I think in the beginning of Acts chapter 1 we can see this foundation of belief translated to action laid out in a way that's going to set the stage for the rest of the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bible we're going to be this morning in Acts chapter 1 and we're going to start together reading in verse number 3. If you've got your Bible I'd love for you to follow along with me. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, After he had suffered, now that he is Jesus, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was with them, he commanded them that them is the early church, specifically his disciples, the apostles. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, You have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up to heaven? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they arrived, they went to a room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Jealot, and Judas the son of James. And they were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So maybe at first glance, this does not look like the most shocking passage of Scripture in the book of Acts. Matter of fact, as we keep going, we see miracles performed. We see dead raised to life. We see Roman governors confronted and presented with the gospel. But here in Acts chapter 1, we see the foundation for all of that laid. Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's been with his apostles for 40 days. And now he takes them outside of the city of Jerusalem and he ascends into heaven to be with his father while they watch. But before he does, he makes a promise and says, I'm going to send you back to the city and while you're there, you're to wait because I'm going to send the Spirit to come and empower you. And so that's what we see here in Acts chapter 1. We see the church uh, hear this and go and wait for the promise to be fulfilled. And, and I think there's a few things that we see here in these verses we read. Four fruits, if you will, of the beliefs from the early church that we're going to see change the world throughout the rest uh, of the book. And I, I can't take credit for coming up with the way we talk about these four fruits, these four uh, beliefs put into action 
action. They're from Vance Pittman, who is a pastor and the president of the SEND Network, a church planning network. But I think he does a good job uh, for us to kind of think about these fruits of their beliefs that change the world. I want to go through four of them with you today. First one is this. They had a faith that produced obedience. When you look at the early church, what we see here is we see their faith in who Jesus is and what he had did and what he promises to do, and that faith led them to obedience. If you go back and just look, I want to point out something that you may have missed, but I think is really important. It says that uh, in verse 4, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. And then down in verse 8, when he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. You may say, Chip, I don't understand what's such a big deal there. Well, here's what the big deal is. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem, to wait in Jerusalem and to start their mission for the kingdom in Jerusalem. And again, you're thinking, yeah, I, I got that. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Where was Jesus just betrayed, arrested, and crucified? It wasn't in Bethlehem. It wasn't in Rome. It was in Jerusalem. Jesus was telling them to go back to the place where they had just been persecuted, where he had just been arrested and killed, where their fiercest opposition still lived and held power. This is where God told them that the new movement of the kingdom would begin. And what did they do? Their faith led them to obedience. This is the place. I think if they're thinking of any place for them to start, this is the place where that plan, that kingdom could have been snuffed out the quickest. Logically, strategically, it just made no sense for them to go back to Jerusalem. And in going back to Jerusalem, they were risking their lives. But still they went. Now, I think what's incredible if we go past the book of Acts, it is that we see this idea of risking their lives for the mission, their faith leading to obedience, even obedience and death. It is something that we see lived out in the life of the apostles. Matter of fact, every one of them were obedient because of their faith uh, up to the point of the cost of their lives. Just really quickly, Andrew was crucified, Bartholomew was flayed to death with a whip, James the Just was thrown from the temple and then beaten, James the Greater was beheaded, John died in exile, Luke was hanged, Mark was dragged until he died by a horse, Matthew was stabbed through a sword, Matthias was stoned and beheaded, Peter was crucified upside down, Philip was crucified right side up, and Thomas was stabbed to death by a spear. And yet, they went. Their faith led them to obedience. And here's why. They heard the voice of God. And when God speaks, we respond in obedience. Now, I think that is something that we desperately need to hear as the church today. If we believe that there's a God who exists, 
If he has revealed himself through his son and his resurrection from the dead and then shown us his will through his inspired word, the only options that we are left with are obedience or disobedience. This is not up for debate. And yet too often we treat the word of God like a buffet where we pick what we like, we dismiss what we don't, and we live our lives as if this is just moderately true. What you've heard us say in this entire series is if these things are true, it changes everything. If these things are false, it changes nothing. And because now we know these things are true, this truth demands our obedience that we follow wherever he says go, even when it doesn't make sense. The second thing they had was not just a faith that produced obedience, but they had a passion that produced unity. Look at how, we, the, the, how this ended, the passage that we read earlier in verse 14. It says that they were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were all continually united in prayer. Maybe a better way to translate this is not they were continually united in prayer, but that they were of one mind in their prayer. That's the uh, more literal translation of the Greek. It literally means that they had one will, one heart, or one passion. And that's what brought them together, is they had a passion that produced unity. These early apostles, this early church was so passionate about the name and fame of Jesus, so passionate about the spread of his kingdom, that there was no greater goal in their lives that they would rather give themselves to. The kingdom of God was their passion. And I think that if we're truthful in and of ourselves, man, we believe these things, but yet we are not passionate about them. We are passionate about so much else. Just look at the amount of division inside of the church today. Division among so many things, the least of which is that it is not the, the political division that exists in the church today. And I wonder if that division is not simply because we have lost our passion our passion for the kingdom, our passion for Christ that unites us, and that's why we are being divided by lesser things. And you know what's absolutely incredible to me is that I see passion uniting people still today. We're in Lake City, Florida right now, and we're about 30 miles away from Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. And this Sunday, not Saturday because of the hurricane coming through, but this Sunday when this airs, there's going to be people that fill that stadium and put on orange and blue and cheer on their gators. And they're going to be high-fiving everybody around them wearing the same colors, and they're not going to stop one time to ask who they voted for for president. They're not going to leave the Gators because another fan disagreed with them over a secondary or tertiary matter. Why? Because they're passionate for their team. I wonder what it would look like if the church became that passionate for the kingdom. If we would, if we would cease to let lesser things divide us. The unity we need is not going to come from uniformity of belief. We're always going to look at things a little bit differently. But it comes from a passion that is greater than anything 
that would divide us. So they had a faith that led to obedience. They had a passion that led to unity. Third, they had a desperation that produced prayer. Go back and look at verse 14 again. It says they were all continually united, but how were they united? They were united in prayer. And if you go back and look at verse 13, it says when they arrived, they began to pray. You see, when they arrived after seeing Jesus ascend, as soon as they get to the upper room, they begin to pray. They pray and they pray and they pray for 40 days until the Spirit of God comes and fills upon them and fills them. And I think that, that why they did that is because they were desperate to see God fulfill His promise. They were desperate to see God move. They were desperate to see God expand His kingdom just the way that He had promised. And I think that because the church today has become so uh, so wealthy in so many areas, so wealthy with so many resources, wealthy with material possessions that we have ceased to be desperate and reliant upon God. I'm reading a book right now with some of our pastors written by a man named Leonard Ravenhill who passed away a long time ago. But in this book he wrote called Why Revival Tarries, he says that the greatest enemy of the church's effectiveness today is our own ability to be effective. And I think he's right. See, the early church knew that without the hand of God and the move of God in their midst, they would not be effective for the kingdom. And today, we think that we can be effective on our own without the hand and work of God in our life. And that's just not it. If we were truly desperate to see God work in our homes we were truly desperate to see God work in our communities, if we were truly desperate to see God change our schools and our workplaces, if we were truly desperate to see God move, that desperation would lead us to prayer just like it did the early church. And then the last thing, the church had the spirit that produced power. You go back and look at verse 8. He says, but, we, but you will receive power when, when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, 40 days from Acts chapter 1, we're going to see that promise fulfilled and the Spirit of God come in power. And that Spirit is going to empower the early church to take the kingdom to places it never had before. That Spirit of God indwelling the people of God is the power by which the world has changed. This is what Francis Chan, writing in a book called Forgotten God, this is what he says, He says, when I read the book of Acts, I see the church as an unstoppable force. The church was powerful and spreading like wildfire, not because of clever planning, but by a movement of the Spirit. Riots, torture, poverty, or any type of persecution couldn't stop it. Isn't that the type of church that we all long to be a part of? They had faith that led them to obedience. They had passion that led them to unity. They had desperation that led them to prayer. And then they had a spirit that empowered them for the mission. They walked by the spirit. They kept in step with the spirit. And it was that fruit of the spirit that began to change the world around them. And the thing that I I want you to make sure that you don't miss 
is that all of these, all of these things that we've looked at, their, their faith and obedience, their, their desperation and prayer, their passion and unity, their, their spirit and the power, all of that is a fruit of what they believe. When we really believe these things and then live them out and put them to action, it changes the world around us. And what we believe today should bear these same fruits. Now here's my question. Why does it seem like today we don't have this? Is it because we've changed what we believe? No, many of you would say, no, Chip, everything that we've talked about in this series, I believe, I believe there's a God, I believe his son is Jesus, I believe that his word is real and inspired, I believe all of these things and so much more. My beliefs haven't changed. Yeah, but your actions have. And you know what I know? How you live shows what you truly believe. I think somewhere along the way, without ever realizing it, we stop believing what we believe. And I hope this series has been a strength to you, has been an encouragement to you, and has built confidence in you for what you believe. And that for maybe the first time in a long time, you would really believe the truth of what you claim to believe. And that in believing, these beliefs would be fleshed out into action in your life. That you would have a faith that leads to obedience. That you would have a passion that leads to unity. That you would have a desperation that leads to prayer. And ultimately that you would be filled with the Spirit and empowered for the mission. See, I still believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And I believe that these beliefs that change the world once can do it again if we will just put them into action. Can I pray for you? God, I thank you for the time that you've given us to look at your word throughout this series. And God, I pray that you would strengthen our beliefs and that those beliefs would be fleshed out in the actions of our lives. God, I ask as simply as I can that you would use the church to change the world one more time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.